Lisa gave me this for my birthday and Charlotte was really excited like oh that looks really interesting and I think I originally in my head was like oh this will be like my brain I think it was still coming down off of paying the land so I'm like oh this will be another like in-depth deep dive into the problems of the oil sands and I started reading it and I was just like yeah you're never going to want to read this comic this is (laughs) incredibly triggering and upsetting for you don't read this book which is kind of a bummer but uh I I mean I got a lot out of this book but it was just like she originally was excited to read it and I was like "Mm, no you're not gonna want to read this (laughs) <laughs> this is a very selective like I, it's tough because I was like this is a great comic but also like this is like there's yeah not for everyone I don't think I don't think everyone's going to enjoy reading this book but it's an important book yeah I don't know I'm sorry now this is a bad segue we just started jumping in talking about the book unless we want to chat some more well uh, let's let's do our our <laughs> warning here that uh this book and thus our podcast going to deal with things including sexual assault and uh sexual harassment and is there anything else that needs a a warning on it environmental destruction dead animals yeah perhaps it's just like be be aware that this is a a heavy book Mm -hmm. with a lot of misery from a, a lot of different angles uh and so it's it it's not going to be appropriate for all audiences. Uh, it's definitely only going to be appropriate for adult audiences in terms of the uh, the nature of the discussion we're going to be having. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, be pre- it's not it's not a comedy. Yeah, and I think especially important if you are already a fan of Kate Beaton's work, this is not like her other work. Expect yeah. it to be different. I was about I was about to say there's no fat pony in this book, but that's a there lot. is a fat pony in this book. <laughs> <laughs> but it's one also uh, like spoilers. We're gonna talk about everything that happens in the book. So yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe this isn't the kind of book where spoilers is something you should care about. Well, just uh, read read the book, then listen to this podcast. If you listen to this podcast and then read the book, I think you're gonna be hurting your experience. So sure, read the book first. Okay, well, welcome to the Trade Waiters. Jam, what book are we reading that we all have already been talking about? Right, today <laughs> we are reading Ducks by Kate Beaton. The subtitle is Two Years in the Oil Sands, and it is a memoir of her time working in the Alberta oil sands or tar sands, as they are sometimes known. Do you have a character building question for us? I do. I want to know what the worst job you ever had is. <laughs> oh. Hmm. Oh, um, hmm. Can okay. I just... I guess it depends how you define worse. It's, it's how you define worse. Yeah. Can I just say all of them? Uh, no. No. Uh, <laughs> this is a tough one. All right. So I'm Jeff Ellis. Uh, I'm really struggling because I feel like there's different, yeah, like different ways of thinking about worse as in like the actual company being bad or like the work you're doing being bad. I mean, there's a lot of aspects of 
retail, I worked a lot of retail in the start of my career and there's things about doing retail that is awful, but like I found that in all retail, there was camaraderie with my coworkers that really was valuable and helped me get through. So I guess I'm going to say like teaching at a private for-profit post-secondary school is probably the worst job that I had because like, I think that's where I just feel like that was the most toxic, damaging kind of company. And like, again, there was camaraderie within the staff, but I just think that this was a company that was actively harming people in the sense that like it was convincing a lot of people to take out student loans that they were never going to pay back to get credentials and courses that were never going to result in a job. And they were just, everything was sort of putting the least amount of money in to maximize profit. And it just always boiled down to profits. You know, I, I often referred to the enrollment team as the sales team. And I know like someone in sales was really offended uh, sorry, so in enrollment was really offended that I called them sales. They're like, we're not sales, we're enrollment. I'm like, yeah, like, is there a difference? Like, uh, yeah, that's the worst job I had. Now I don't work there anymore. It's great. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, I'm JD. And, um, I think in terms of like day to day, the worst place I worked was, uh, I worked one day as a dishwasher in a kitchen, in a, like a pub in Victoria, and then they never called me back and that's probably for the best. But in terms of jobs I had for any length of time, uh, the first school I taught at in Taiwan uh, was the first full-time job I ever had. First job I had at a university. I was like living in another country. It was a whole big thing. And the boss wasn't great. She was constantly changing her mind and like constantly losing money and the schedule for students like was different every single year. The school was breaking the law because they weren't supposed to be like, they weren't supposed to have as many English speaking teachers per Chinese speaking teachers as they did. Uh, although every English kindergarten in Taiwan breaks that same law. So shrug emoji. Uh, but the, the, the breaking point for the reason I left halfway through was two things. One, they were late paying us, which is a problem. Like a couple of other teachers basically sat in the office until they got paid so that we could get paid. And also the, the head of the school decided that the school was going to be English only, uh, which was not how I had been running my classes. And she didn't announce this in a meeting or anything. She announced this in front of the students uh, and in front of me saying, you are no longer allowed to speak Chinese to Jonathan teacher. And I didn't like that. That reminded, I mean, I didn't know a lot about residential schools at that point, uh, even despite having been to university, but like, that was like red flag. Like, I don't want to do that. Uh, I was not trained as a teacher at this point. I didn't have any like grounds for this belief. I didn't have any like uh, anything I could say to prove that this was a bad idea. I just felt like this is a really bad idea. So I didn't last very long at that school after that. Footnote to that, uh, when I did do my teacher training after I came back to Canada, I took an ESL class and a paper I decided to write for that was on the subject of 
English only classrooms. And fun fact, there is no research that demonstrates that English only is a better way to learn any language in any environment and quite the opposite. So okay. I was right. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I'm Jam and uh, I've had a range of jobs. Uh, I've worked in a lot of really dirty industrial environments. I've worked in a foundry, I've worked in a cement plant, uh, I've done work at coal facilities. I even did quite a bit of work where I was like, spent a lot of time crawling inside industrial like waste scrubbers, scru scraping toxic gunk off the walls. Yeah. And that was not the worst job I ever had. The worst job was actually when I was a teenager. Uh, I worked for a temp agency for a time. And as a temp agency, they just give you kind of general office type screening. You know, they're like, can you type and use a computer? Uh, and then where they send you can be completely random. And one of the places that I ended up was, you know, I show up at this office and I still to the, to this day, I very, I only have a very vague idea of what this company even does, but they showed me, I think I was like 15 at the time, maybe a little older, maybe like, I, I must've had a car. So I must've been like 17. They basically put me in a small room, all alone, windowless room with a one giant stack of paper that was all like form letters printed out and one other giant stack of paper that was like reams of addresses. And all of the form letters were basically like people who were late on paying for, I swear to God that they were like Fabergé eggs or something. It doesn't even matter. <laughs> it was like the most bizarre things. And all I had to do was like highlight the amount that they were overdue on one page and then put it in an envelope that matched the address and send it. And so it was just like completely mind-numbingly boring. I was completely alone. But the worst part is that I had an eye infection and my, like, just, I got there like day one and I don't know what happened, but my eye was infected and it was like swelling shut and completely painful while I was trying to do this like highlighting thing. Uh, so I think that job was three days. That's just how the temp agency was. Yeah, that was the worst. <laughs> Do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, Kate Beaton, maybe? Yeah, for sure. So Kate Beaton is no stranger to comics. She's very well known in our industry. And this, uh, this book was very highly anticipated. So she's probably, yeah, I would say she's best known for her webcomic which was Hark a Vagrant. So she went to university and got a degree in history in Mount Allison and, you know, clearly went to work in the oil sands for a time. But while she was doing that, she was started writing these comics about comedy based on historical fact. She published a few collections. One was Never Learn Anything from History. One was also titled Hark a Vagrant. That was the first drawn and quarterly one. And the second drawn and quarterly one was uh, Step Aside Pops. She's won a number of awards for her work. Hark a Vagrant, the webcomic itself, has been nominated for Joe Schuster Award. Uh, it's been nominated for Harvey Awards, but she first won a Doug Wright Award for the webcomic itself. She's won an Ignatz Award and a Doug Wright Award for that same Hark a Vagrant. I believe that's the webcomic. This, this list of awards is kind of unclear because there's also 
a collection called Hark a Vagrant. And so it's a little bit hard to tell. So the Doug Wright, actually it says best book. So Doug Wright award for Hark a Vagrant uh, and she won an Eisner for Step Aside Pops. Uh, since then, she's been doing a number of different things. So she wrote a children's book called The Princess and the Pony, uh, which then became uh, an Apple TV series recently called Pinecone and Pony. And she also wrote another children's book called King Baby. But this is her return to longer form comics. And it's a bit of a shift. You know, she's done a number of memoir comics on the internet throughout the years. You know, we've been able to check in with her family and get to know kind of a bit more about her personal world. But this is the first time she's publishing a memoir collection. Yeah, so this is, uh, I was looking forward to this book because I'm familiar with Kate Beaton's other work. And because she's done, like, part of Harker Vagrant, sometimes it would be, like, history, jokes about history. Sometimes it would be uh, little jokes about her life. And so I remember there being a comic where the, the ducks incident, the one where there are ducks stuck in a tailings pond, was the, was the comic. Uh, and um, it wasn't gone into any detail at that point because, I mean, it's just like a one-page comic. But, like, I think we all kind of knew that that was going to be the, the event that this book is named after. Uh, and then there had been other comics she'd done about the fact that she was working in the oil sands and plenty of comics about uh, her parents. So I think I was kind of expecting something along the, the, that vein, maybe something... Uh, like Jeff mentioned at the start about, we just read Paying the Land recently. So I was kind of expecting this to be about the oil sands. Uh, and it wasn't, it was about, I mean, it was about the oil sands, but not in the way that I thought. And then, yeah, it's like, it's a really intense book, but uh, it's, I don't know. I think it says a lot about the world. I think it says a lot about Canada. I think it says a lot about the oil sands. I feel like this is a, a book that is going to be around for a long, long time. I agree. Like my perspective on this work is that, you know, Kate spent a long time writing about history and this book is history. Mm. This book is, is kind of a really important personal, it's like a, a primary account, right? It's a primary account of what's happening in the oil sands. Uh, and perhaps we can spend a moment just kind of giving the broader context to the tar sands. Uh, so the reason titling it Ducks is very interesting and it's, it's a little bit layered and perhaps we can go into that later, but this event that you mentioned where a number of ducks got stuck in a tailings pond and died. Uh, and for those who don't know, a tailings pond is where, you know, the, the effluent of an industrial process is kind of dumped into what looks like a lake, but it's very toxic and it's set, it's set there to, settle out over time so that it's less toxic. But if an animal mistakes it for a regular lake and lands on it, they're immediately covered in oil and died. And so what's happened is that, and this happens in many, many places around the world as well, but very famously in Fort McMurray, thousands, I think, of dead ducks were discovered in their tailings pond. And this is probably for, for people who aren't very well connected, I would say to this world, I think that was really a watershed moment for people's awareness into the existence of the tar sands and kind of what they're like. So before then, 
I think a lot of people didn't know anything about the tar sands at all. And maybe they heard the phrase, the tar sands in passing and would not have known what that is. So again, like to expand on this a little bit, there are many different ways that you can get oil and gas out of the, out of the natural places that they are deposited. The most common way, the, the easiest way that people are probably the most familiar with is you drill down and there's like a pocket full of just pure oil, pureish, you know, and you, you pump it up and then you refine it and send it on its way. Uh, that's the easy oil. That's the oil that a lot of people have already tapped uh, and it has been well extracted throughout the world. And so now people are trying, needing to, to get more difficult oil. And the tar sands is one of these more difficult deposits of oil that exists in the very northern reaches of Alberta. The oil is kind of in the form of a thick tar, bitumen, that's among the sand or dirt. It's kind of like mixed up in dirt. So what you have to do is you have to, it's, it's more like a mining operation. You have to dig up all this dirt and then put it through a processing you know, uh, a processing step to actually separate the dirt from the tar and then, you know, send the dirt back, send the effluent to the tailings pond and then send the bitumen on its way to be refined. And this is a very labor intensive process, like just the physical mining of this, this product is very difficult and it's very destructive to the environment because, you know, you're, you're creating these gigantic mines yeah, you have to kind of like peel off the whole top layer of the earth. Exactly. Like a thin layer of tar sand out because it was all like uh, the, the, it was all a seafloor at one point. That's why it's there. Yeah. Uh, so it's all like a layer. Peel out that layer and then put everything back, but it's never going to be back the way it was at the start. Yeah. So very destructive to the environment uh, and also very challenging work just in general. In, in the absence of all the rest of the things we're going to talk about, what makes this challenging, it's physically demanding work in a very cold place. Mm. So Northern Alberta is very, very cold. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, not a lot of infrastructure, not a lot of roads. The roads, yeah. I mean, based on the map, at least, the roads basically go to the tar sands and then stop. After that, you're on your own. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and another interesting things about the tar sands as kind of like a technical concept is that because it's so difficult, it's only economically viable above something like a hundred dollars a barrel. So below that, it's not worth mining for tar at all. Uh, and it's only as we have continued to extract fossil fuels and get, you know, farther and farther from our easy deposits that now it's, now it's worthwhile, quote unquote. And it's also extremely lucrative for the companies. And so they're willing to pay almost anyone to go out there. And so this is kind of the reputation that it, it has throughout Canada on top of just like, oh, tar sands, that's like a place where there's oil in Canada. But also if you want a job and you're willing to endure like a lot of hardship, you can go and get paid very well. And that's a reputation I would say coast to coast. Yeah, no, that's, thank you guys. That was a great summary of the oil sands. I think, I think I learned a little bit more about the oil sands. Even. <laughs> yeah, it's not very well known. I know quite a lot about it because I have a lot of engineering friends who have gone. Right. So it's even among engineers, like it's very well known. And a lot of my friends went and did this, you know, for co-op opportunities or postgraduate. 
you know, it's a very lucrative place to be compared to all the other jobs you could take as an engineer. It probably paid 1.5 to two times as much. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And in Alberta uh, and I guess Canada in general, like this is a, a huge economic boon, not necessarily a very evenly distributed boon, but the government is very much in favor of this uh, extraction process because the government gets revenue from it and people get jobs and then they pay taxes. And yeah, um, so there's a huge incentive to keep it going. Yeah. I don't know if this is still the case, but I remember when I was a teenager, people from Alberta would come to shop at Lee Valley tools where I worked and they'd be so annoyed that they had to pay provincial sales tax because in Alberta, there's no such thing as provincial sales tax because they have enough oil money that there's just the coffers are full. They don't have to charge people provincial sales tax, you know. Although it goes up and down, like the amount of money Alberta has at any one point depends a lot on like whether the oil companies are making money that year or not. Yeah, yeah. Well, and this is, we get, I mean, sorry, I don't want to, we could do a whole other uh, (laughs) podcast on the grievance culture that's formed by Alberta being asked by the federal government to share even a tiny percentage of the wealth that they extract from the oil industry, (laughs) how that makes Alberta have this huge chip on its shoulder that is part of the makeup of the culture of being an Albertan. That feels like a different book (laughs) that has yet to be written. Yeah, and the the reason why I wanted to give a bit of a technical summary of the the oil sands is because all of that is kind of set dressing for the story that's actually being told here, which is what really drew me to this work. And is really, really interesting because it's, I would say it focuses through, through Kate's own experiences and through the lens of her experiences, it focuses on the very human tool that work in the oil sands takes, but also a very specific a specific like subcategory of that human tool, which is the relationship between the Maritimes and Alberta, which right. is also very unique within Canada, I feel. Uh, so uh, Jeff, as you mentioned, like there's a lot of discussion at the federal level trying to get Alberta to share this revenue, you know, like they happen to have these oil deposits and that makes Alberta a lot of money. That is what, you know, in Canada, we call that a have province. And then uh, Cape Breton and Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, uh, New Brunswick, very beautiful places, very rich culturally, a lot of history, but they are considered have not provinces. Uh, And some of the the history, there's a little bit that kind of touches in the book here and there, but they used to have a really, I would say probably first was fishing. Uh Like that was what really established most of the communities there it was the cod fishing industry uh and you know based on our the heritage minutes that they show us in in canada you know like the cod were so thick that you could walk out of the boat and step on their backs you know and be carried across the water but bucket into the water and pull it out and it'd be full of cod yeah (laughs) and that was that was the reputation for hundreds of years but uh then they were fished almost completely out And so that industry collapsed and then there was mining there for a time and then that industry collapsed. So the the Maritimes, which is kind of how you refer to those collection of provinces, 
uh, they have this, this history of extraction and collapse, extraction and collapse, and now there's nothing left within the maritime provinces. And so many people, Kate included, choose to go elsewhere for work. They either go to Toronto, they go to Alberta, or they go somewhere else. That's yeah. a lot easier to find a job than their home. Yeah. So previous to uh, this episode, I listened to the, I'm going to plug another podcast, the Canada Land podcast, did an interview with Kate um, about ducks, and they had a discussion about being a migrant worker in your own country. And yeah, I, I hadn't really thought about this framing of like being a migrant worker within your own nation, but like I think that that really does summarize all the maritime workers in Alberta. It's like, you're a migrant worker in your own country. You know, you speak the same language, you're technically the same, you have the same passport, but you're a migrant, you're a migrant worker, you know? Uh, it's, it, I hadn't really thought about it until I listened to that interview. And that really sort of helped frame this, this work, which um, I was going to say, I really thought the, the first chapter did a really good job of setting the table there too, because uh, the whole first section, Kate is just talking about how basically it's understood in the Maritimes that you're going to go to school and then you're going to leave for a long time. You're going to go away to another province to get a job and you're going to spend 10 years, 15 years doing that job. And then if you're lucky, you'll have enough money to come back. But like, it's just understood that like, oh yeah, my kids aren't going to be here forever. My kids are going to leave for 10 years and then they might come back. Like it's, it's just sort of part of the, the life cycle or the culture of um, the Maritimes, which again, is like, I hadn't, I don't live, having not lived there. It's like, I hadn't really thought about this, this sort of, impermanence to the the generations there right um yeah also, but I, also a very forced impermanence yeah they don't oh, yeah, have, yeah. and kate does a really good job of kind of illustrating you know the choices that she had personally once she graduated university and i thought that was very very interesting and like the crushing student debt which is still like a fraction of what americans pay for their university but it's still enough to crush people here in canada Oh yeah, no that that part like as much as this is about the experience of being from the Maritimes, it's also the experience of being from like graduating around the year two thousand ish. Yeah, it's a, of being an, a millennial, and it's just yeah. exacerbated yeah. since then. I mean, yeah. that was a big part of why I went to Taiwan. I didn't have student loans at that point because I was lucky, and my parents paid for the first four years of my university. Did have student loans later. Uh, but I needed a job and I had an art degree and like, there's no jobs. So I, like, I became a migrant worker and I moved to another country for a bit. Uh, and there were like, there were people I worked with who were in that same situation where they're there to pay off their student loans or similar. They're going to make some money and then go back home. And this is like, it seems like a pretty common thing but not something that's like very often explored in in media yeah yeah all the people who have been through it are too busy working jobs and not making books or movies yeah it's it's shocking how big the migrant community is globally and you're right like how how little is that's discussed like one one thing that really struck me when i was traveling once in hong kong all of the 
the staff, the housekeepers, the nannies, all of them are migrant workers, usually from the Philippines, I think. And there's this, there's this concept of remittance, which isn't really common in, well, it is definitely common in Canada, but not common among this group, I don't think, the, the migrant workers who go to the tar sands. But not only have you had to leave your home to, to go and try and find any kind of income, but a good portion of what you're earning and trying to scrape by is actually sent back home. Mm. Uh, and I, uh, to connect this to this memory of Hong Kong, like I just happened to be there on the Saturday, which is the one day that all these people contractually get off and all of them at once have to go to the remittance office to wire their money back home. And it's like, it was just packed, <laughs> like an incredible amount of people just standing in line just to send remittance. And so it's they're they're everywhere. You know, there's there's tons of migrant workers all around the world. Yeah. And I think it's important to to make that connection because I think a lot of people who were in a similar circumstance to me and were from a, a quote unquote Western country and arrived in Taiwan to teach English didn't think of themselves as migrant workers. Like we were expats. It's a totally other class, but no, like legally I'm there on a work visa, the, the nannies and the, the cleaners and everybody else who's from like other countries in Asia, they have the same legal status as me. We're, we're migrant workers basically. Uh, and we're there to make money and then we're not going to be able to stay. So I, I think we need to sort of like recognize that this is, I mean, there's obviously a class difference there where I had um, like social privileges that someone from the Philippines might not have, but there it's, there's still like, I don't know, there's, there's a connection there that I think needs to be recognized and built upon rather than ignored. Yeah. yeah. Like take this, take this empathy. I think Kate is, has a very empathetic style of writing mm -hmm. uh, and it's very quick and very easy to empathize with her in her situation. So it can be a really good gateway into being able to empathize with all of these other populations uh, for whom, you know, books have not been written yet. Yeah. What you're, yeah, what you're describing, Jonathan, is very much similar to my time being an English teacher in Japan. Like, and it was funny because, yeah, like I would run into in, like South Asian workers who were just like slaving away in like a factory and they had pretty decent English, but like they weren't a North American with English skills, right? And so they couldn't get into these teaching positions. So they were just doing these crap factory jobs. And like you'd run into all these Brazilian people, this huge Brazilian population that's just like invisible culturally, but they're just doing all this work in the background, right? And it's like, yeah, we were all meeting each other at the same immigration office to get our stamp on our passport, but like, I was probably making three times as much money because I was this swanky North American English teacher. And <laughs> yeah, and there's different that. passport rules too. <laughs> like the my boss's nanny was from Indonesia and she got one trip. She got to do one job while she was in Taiwan. Uh, she was like near the end of her contract and then she was going to go back to Indonesia. And then that was it. She would never be let back in the country. Uh, whereas like I could come and go, like I went back and forth. You have to leave Taiwan and, and come back to get a work visa. So I went to Hong Kong a couple times to get 
the the right visa so I could come back. But like she wouldn't have been able to do that. Oh my God. There's so much to explore here, but uh, <laughs> I know this is all maybe, maybe you should come back. <laughs> uh, just just for fun, uh, I tagged a few pages at the start and I just wanted to um, have this. So this is things said by 21 year old Kate Beaton in the year, I don't know what, 2001 <laughs> um, that have recently been said by 42, 42 year old Jeff Ellis. So uh, you can't get a job with a BA. I'll never make enough starting out in the arts to have a chance. You still have to get ahead, even with a degree. It's not a golden ticket. I also tagged that her father was like, you could be a teacher. Uh, <laughs> why not? They have good I felt benefits. personally attacked. Vacation, <laughs> pensions, which I'm like, what are you talking about? What teaching jobs are you talking about? Kate Beaton's dad? That's not what being a teacher is. <laughs> No, I mean, Kate was right, though, that like, if you're, if you're a full-time teacher, like, forget about having time to make art. Oh, yeah. That's well, I'm not a full-time teacher. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then she's talking to her sister about how she should still go to school, even though it's going to put her in debt and she has to go to the oil sands to pay it off. Like, yeah, um, it, it's startling. Like a lot of, <laughs> so the, the maritime workers, quite often they go to the oil sense because of that lack of education. So a lot of the people that Kate encounters, and it touches on this later in the book, are without any kind of qualifications. Some of them may not even have high school diplomas, but they're still able to go to the oil sense and get more money than they could get in almost any other role that they have access to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was also, there's, I can't remember where it is in the book, but at one point, uh, Kate is like having to decide between two different jobs. She's like make, laying it out in a little chart to decide like, which is the one. Oh, here it is. I was lucky, page 187. So she's comparing these two jobs, deciding which one to take. And I don't know, man, these two jobs that are supposed to be making, making her so much money, they're not actually that well paying like $22 an hour. I mean, I know it's like 2005 or something, but that, that's not a huge amount in 2005 either. Yeah. But it's, it's straight out of school. Yeah. Uh, without it's it's a fairly trade. worse than she can make otherwise. Yeah. Without a trade and without any prior qualifications. Yeah. So no, $20, quote unquote, like hired off the street is mm-hmm pretty good compared to you know some most retail I would say not yeah I was gonna say I I don't even know if I got up to $22 an hour when I was a shift supervisor at the art store and that was like I put in about three years to get myself up there I don't know if I was maybe I was at 22 by then rents on top of that yeah like maybe I was at 22 by then I can't remember but like yeah, like I when I my first job, like I think I was still single digits. Like I was a warehouse boy. I think I was doing like eight, nine dollars an hour, right? And then when I was retail staff, maybe then I was like twelve dollars an hour. So like, yeah. So what it's you have to compare it to <laughs> is these like eight to twelve roles. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but you made a great point about like the Vancouver rent, like no room and board, mm-hmm. like or room and board included. You right. know, $22 an hour, you know, you're not paying provincial sales tax. Probably your income tax is a little bit different on the provincial level as well, but you get to take home a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, yeah. That's, 
in Long Lake, it's it says on this list here, 22 an hour, but then it's um, no expenses, right? So you're living mm. on camp. You're not paying rent. $22 an hour with no rent and no utilities. Oh, yeah. No, when I did have student <laughs> loans, it took me way more than two years to pay them off. So clearly the math works out. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't I understand. And I think that's that's pretty important. Like anyone could see that even though this was a difficult decision, it was a very rational decision. Mm -hmm almost like <laughs> ruthlessly rational. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, you know, honestly, like I, you know, I mean, like, I don't know. I, I recently got my bachelor's degree and I have really no idea how I'm going to pay off my student loans. Uh, and I'm reading this book about Kate Beaton graduating school and trying to figure out how to deal with all this debt. And I'm like, oh man, like, if such a, if like a oil sands type job was available, would I take it? I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, I don't know if I could cut it. I feel like I would just break in this <laughs> situation. Like, I think Kate Beaton's made of sterner stuff than me. I think I'd do like a week and be like, I can't do this. I got to go back home. Like, <laughs> but it's driven by desperation, you know? Yeah. 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 A lot of that fortitude comes from not having a choice, but yeah, definitely Kate has demonstrated that she throughout throughout this work that she can hold her own in a very very difficult environment. Yeah, um, yeah, just like man, I mean the the opening, I don't know something I really enjoyed about this whole work is just like the way she builds a sense of place, like all these like faraway sky shots of the different cities like even to have the hand-drawn Canadian map at the front and then when she first arrives in Fort McMurray all the little like aspect to aspect panels you can tell I've been yeah. being a nerdy comic teacher yeah, the, the <laughs> wide shots of like industrial wasteland and uh, I do want to touch on that for a little bit of a moment because Kate's other work kind of as we mentioned is more comedic in nature more uh, simple, like in terms of the the panel layouts that she's come to employ throughout most of her comedy work. Uh, and it's really impressive and remarkable now that she's had this chance to flex her creative and cartooning skills in a different format. You know, she, I think she does a tremendous job with these, you know, uh, environment building, sense of place. Uh, I loved the way that she rendered these oil sand scenes, industrial scenes are incredibly difficult to capture. And I think the, the way that she rendered this with uh, a lot of, you know, scratchy inks and washes uh, really worked, really worked well. And the, the fact that it's a black and white book is, you know, it's a choice you can make, but it suits the environment so well. Mm. Uh, environment is just very, very stark and very gray most of the year. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think the... Yeah, this is the right choice. I mean, the, if you wanted to drive the point home any further, I would just say uh, colorize the Victoria chapter and then leave everything else black and white. Oh, that, would be interesting. <laughs> that would be interesting. Yeah, maybe Cape Breton. Do you do Cape Breton oh, halfway yeah. where it's like Breton, yeah. mostly gray, but there's some other colors in there? <laughs> Anyways. Um, I mean, that would make the book more expensive to print, though. So I, never mind. I actually, I, this is just a quick art thing, but uh, there's a couple times like on say page 37 where there would be these like 
big white borders with just like three panels stacked up one on top of the other. And those always felt kind of reminiscent of the original kind of Hark of Vagrant web comics. And I, I don't know, I just kind of enjoyed that it sort of felt like these little webcomic formatted panel arrangements sort of snuck in every once in a while in the midst of these more kind of wider print formatted sort of layouts. Yeah, and her cartooning, like the, the way she draws characters, like her skill with comedy, like perfectly oh. adapts to this where so much of it is emotional and like there, there's not very many funny moments in this book, but the, when they happen, they're like, oh, right, this is an expert at this. Yeah, throughout this book, the facial expressions, just Kate nails facial expressions. And like, it's like, again, like, I don't know, page 39, where she's doing the interview, and it's just the people ask her a question, it cuts back to her with the like, awkward smile. And it's just <laughs> like, that face, that face makes me laugh. There's no joke, but it's just like, that face is hilarious. Like, uh, facial expressions just nail it yeah 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 and such a she has such a simple style but it it just means that every line counts for so much more yeah it it really makes me I don't know, want to try to simplify more because I feel like it's this is a real testament to minimalist cartooning hmm so the, the biggest thing that I did not expect from this book was became sort of the main theme I felt was the, uh, the sexism that she faces when she gets to the oil sands. And yeah. it's just like, it's constant. It's like one end of the book to the other. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it's, I just remember I have a, a, a friend who, uh, used to have a job where they would go to construction sites and their job was to test the soil to make sure that there wasn't like toxins and that it was safe to start constructing. And that was her job. So she'd go all around all these different construction sites all across the lower mainland um, and later in Washington state. And, you know, she would often share with me just like that you know, when you're dealing with all these guys on construction sites, they're pretty gruff. They're pretty rough around the edges. And, you know, you have to kind of, you know, be, brace yourself, be ready to kind of hit back, essentially, was sort of her approach. Um, and, you know, I think, like, I had a sense of that kind of environment from talking to her. But I think, like, reading this, it was just like, I think it just I had such deeper insight. I was like, oh, geez, like it is nonstop. And like, I was also thinking my friend had the advantage that she put in an eight hour day and then she could go home and get away from that. Where like Kate is like living on this camp. It's just, it's day 24 seven, it never stops, right? And it's just like, I, it's, it's, a, it's something I can only experience through the reading of this book. Like I've been trying to sort of relate it in my own life. Like, where would I, encounter this kind of non-stop like I don't know abuse or just like violations of your your boundaries of like it's just like I think this I don't know it was it was sad to me that one of the other themes is just like Kate talking to other women and other women being like yep me too like I've also had that experience and you're just like oh my god like yeah I will say so as I mentioned at the beginning I've uh, I, I work in technical fields. I've been to a wide range uh, of various industrial settings. And while the oil sands is particularly intense due to its isolation, 
nothing in this book surprised me. Right. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> really I don't know. I mean, my, obviously, like, we've got different experiences of, of life, but also different working environments. I've only, I think I've only ever worked in places where the majority of the people working there were women. And mm -hmm. it's just, it's not like this because it can't be like it, it would yeah. get shut down too quickly. I mean, that's, um, and I think like, I think that's the, the value of this book is like communicating this experience to people who have never like been like felt it personally or been exposed to it personally, because even for, like even if for like a, a man who went to the oil sands, I feel like it would be a completely different experience because it's not directed at you. Yeah. No, but there is also kind of an intensity to it. Uh, so as a man in the oil sands, you'd have to, you know, either rise to it, you know, like rise to that level and try to hold your own. But obviously it is kind of a night and day if you're coming as someone who's uh, feminine. And it, it, the relentless nature is kind of, you know, inescapable. But I think another thing that this book does a really good job of portraying through Kate's own experiences is, you know, your choices when confronted with this situation. So if you speak out, you know, they have a, a scene very early on where, you know, her first shift at the tool crib, which is where she spends most of her time working, all the men came and formed like a, an incredibly long queue just to, just to get a look at her, you know, <laughs> just to get a look at the fresh meat. Uh, and so, you know, having never experienced this before, she was a bit shocked and uh, went to her supervisor to complain, you know, and the supervisor basically shut that down. It's like, are you not tough enough to work here? And I would say that's a very common experience as well. So you kind of have to make, if you're a, a feminine person, you have to make a decision fairly quickly of whether you're going to change your tactic, change your personality to get through or leave. Right. Those are your options. Mm -hmm. uh, and you, the ways your options are very limited and you have to be extremely careful. Uh, rejecting someone in the wrong way will damage your reputation there's a few like instances of that going throughout the book you know like mm. choices that other people make becomes their reputation which spreads quickly throughout the camp which is a very isolated place and that reputation then has its own consequences uh and you have to be very careful about how you respond to these violations this inappropriate behavior because if you react too strongly or if you react too weakly, you know, like it'll damage your standing among the crew. And that makes every single interaction of the whole rest of your day worse. Anything right. that you have to get done relies on your relationship with the crew. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that, yeah, this does a good job of sort of showing like how you're, yeah, you're in a way it's like you kind of get in this sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of situation sometimes where I don't know. I feel like um, it's like people kind of paint this stuff in really simple black and white terms of just like, oh, well, like if you don't want to get harassed, just tell them to fuck off. And you're like, yeah, okay. But like, you know, that, as you say, like that has consequences. And like when you're at a isolated camp and like 
you have to interact with that person every day. Like, obviously you have to be very strategic in how you manage and navigate these things. And I just think people, it's so easy for people to, when they're external to it, to sort of say, oh, well, you should just do this, or this is the answer. Or, it's, it's just this easy. And it's just like, yeah. or I would never accept that. And I would report right. it right away. Not really understanding yeah, what, what's waiting for you on the other side of that report. So yeah. like either the, the other person or the system who is confronting you. So even if you chose to like, I'm going to make this stand and I'm going to, you know, take this all the way to the top, you know, it's like every, every stage of the way is someone who's hostile to you. Mm. Yeah and wants it to just go away. Yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, she does a really good job of portraying this as a, a toxic culture, not a case of toxic individuals, where yeah. let's say that the boss she went to took her seriously and like went and dealt with it and like talked to the other staff, like then that boss would face consequences too. It's just this whole sort of toxic stew Right. where no one is really in a position to stand up and do anything about it because there will be so many other people who will be trying to like swim the other direction. But yeah. also another point that I want to make in this context, every single person at this site is disposable. Yeah. And the organization only cares about getting the oil out of the ground. Right, right. And so one person, you know, is egregious enough that they need to get out. Another person's right there to replace it. The right. Wheel keeps turning. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see this. I mean, it's not just the, the sexism that's going on. It's uh, this, there's other things that have in the background that don't really fit with anything that happened to Kate. But like she mentions in the book, like the, the, the drug abuse that there's like people on cocaine and like all sorts of other substances and like they're, they're addicted and they're having all kinds of problems and they're not able to do their work. And until they get to the point where they are hurting the company, like there's no help. No one's yeah. going to come in and do anything about this. Yeah. Uh, like you you work until you're not profitable and then you're out, you're gone. Yeah. And yeah. another thing about the, the addiction that I want to touch on briefly. Uh, so I've, I've heard this corroborated through again, my colleagues who have spent time there. So we mentioned the money, right? So you're getting paid more than you've ever been able to get paid before and you're keeping 100% of it but you're essentially living on the moon where there's nothing around you for hundreds of kilometers it's boring it's cold it's dark most of the time it's depressing you, you don't have any friends cash. yeah and so the drug abuse is a very direct line <laughs> you know mm -hmm. it's like i have this money Everything here sucks. I'm going to have some fun with some drugs that I can pay for with my money because that's it, it, just this is the option that's available to me. I mean, we 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 know a lot or we don't know that much, but uh, we see the same kind of situation playing out in homelessness where the drugs are self-medicating. It's it's medicating from a really horrendous situation mm -hmm. uh, and it's the same kind of influences at play yeah and i think it was interesting kate points out that they have to do with these regular sort of safety meetings anytime you're at a new work site they have a big safety meeting at no point does anyone in any safety meeting mention drugs um and i think maybe the company is just okay with that until it gets to the point where it's a problem for the company 
Like they don't care what you do in your off time because that's, they just want you to work on your work time. Yeah. As long as you can manage without lost time incidents, they'll turn a blind eye for sure. They yeah. say that there's like a zero tolerance policy. So if like, if they catch you, you're out, but they have to catch that, you. Yeah. Yeah, They're they not actively them. looking for you. You've got to really make a mess for them to catch you. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, this is like a little anecdote, but I remember being at a new year's Eve party and some guy showed up and he was just already like that. We just started the evening and he was already super drunk. And then he just started being like, this sucks. I need to get out of here. Someone needs to give me a ride to the, to waterfront. Like, or no, to Lawnsdale. Someone needs to give me a ride. Help me. Who's got a car? You got to get out of here. This party sucks. And like his friend who brought him, like managed to calm him down and like drive him to Lawnsdale, get him out of there. And then they came back like, yeah, sorry. He's um just came in from the oil sands for his Christmas break. And he drank an entire like Mickey of vodka in the car. And anyways, he's going to go cause some trouble in downtown Vancouver, I guess. Like, it was just like, that was my first introduction to like an oil sands worker. And I remember talking to a friend who lived, grew up in Fort Mac and they were just like, oh yeah, yeah, I met that guy before. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think one of the benefits of this book being so long, because it's a really long book, it's heavy. Uh, is the, like, she takes the time to go into depth with all of these characters, like this rotating cast of the different places she works at. And they're all, like, she empathizes with all of them, basically, or nearly all of them. Like, she's not saying these are terrible people. There are terrible people in the oil sands. It's like, no, this is a circumstance. This is a culture. This is, uh, um, there, there are conditions that have, like, created these results and it's not different in another part of Canada or another part of the world. It's just more extreme in the oil sands because of the circumstances. Yeah. But there's also like a terrifying flip side to that coin under the right conditions, any group of people could become this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, This this is something something that we're sort of moving towards earlier when we were talking about you know what you would do in this work environment and we we're sort of framing it as what would you do as a woman in this work environment but like some a question that Kate starts asking a lot near the end of this book is like what does this environment do to the men and like she starts asking this question of like would my dad hold up under this environment would my uncle hold up would my cousins like it's sort of I mean as, again as a man reading this, like, I found that incredibly depressing. Like, I was just like, oh, God, like, you know, is this just like you get any men in an isolated environment when they get bored enough that suddenly, you know, they're going to act out in this way? Like, I don't, I mean, I'd like to think that it's maybe like we're lacking something in our culture, too. But just like, yeah, I just found that very... Like, it's an important question to ask, but I just found it very bleak as well to to contemplate where it's just like, God, like, how many people are just kind of behaving because, like, circumstances made it easy to do so? And would they just drop that facade were circumstances to change? Like, And um, I think she makes a good point, too, of not saying that this is all the men in the oil sands. It doesn't need to be. Um because there's this culture that just allows some people to act in certain ways. Like 
uh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find the line. She says things like this a couple of times where it's like, well, how, how many men are there here who are just great or like really nice or like a couple, like she has a friend who has like this, uh, this old man who's a, that she's friends with that's like really helpful and kind. And Kate is like, well, I want someone like that. Uh, and like, there's all these, and even the ones who are like, maybe not that great on gender issues and like say a lot of stuff that's really not helpful. They're still like, they're good in other ways. Like it, it's, mm. it's more complicated than just you go to the oil sands and you become a terrible person. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's a certain, there's like a high degree of toxic masculinity because of the gender imbalance. There's the boredom, there's the money, there's the excruciating challenge of the work itself. Uh, and there's the tolerance. So again, like if you imagine yourself as a man in this context, you're just trying to get through your days too. Mm -hmm. So you have the same challenges, similar challenges of like, okay, if I report this, is my manager going to care? Is that going to damage my reputation? What is that going to do with my reputation on the crew? You know, like you have the same kind of questions that you have to ask yourself. So to Kate's point, like not everyone has to be this horrible. It just has to have the right conditions for those horrible people's behavior to be tolerated enough. Mm -hmm. yeah, basically, it's almost like it, it's too much effort to try and police this bad behavior in the oil sand. So then it just kind of turn a blind eye to it you know like the it's judged it's judged it. to be too much effort yeah i would yeah. challenge that it is sorry, yes right. Sorry, sorry, you're right. the higher-ups have decided it's too yeah. much effort. yeah yeah sorry they there's a culture that's been created to sort of not support you if you're trying to push back so then it becomes easier to not push back as a result of this work site culture that's been created yeah, it's yeah. like trying to navigate one of those giant dump trucks that they have on the oil sands. Like you don't, you can't steer that thing. Like it's way easier to just keep going forward. Mm. Oh my God. That <laughs> was, I can't even remember where it was in the book, but I guess at one point someone in a pickup truck gets driven over by one of those trucks. And I was just like, I mean, Kate says this, but I'm also like, I cannot think of a more horrifying way to die. Like that's, mm. I was just like, oh my God. I was like, <laughs> that's. Yeah. And I, I think also like whoever accidentally killed someone like was on cocaine and then they fired him and you're like, yeah, okay. But maybe just deal with the people being on cocaine at the start. I don't know. <laughs> or I don't know. There's so many things you could do and so many things not being done. It's hard to say it's just this one thing. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. there's a lot of people recklessly driving on like icy roads in their giant pickup trucks too, which are not nearly as giant as a dump truck. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, there's that's... all of these circles of blame that you could draw, and they go out to infinity. So, like, yeah. you can draw the circle of blame around the bad actors. You can draw the circle of blame around the people who enable or don't punish or hold the bad actors to account. You can hold the circle of blame to the managers who let it slide, or you could hold the circle of blame to the company who lets it slide, or you can, you know, <laughs> draw the circle of blame to the economy that's decided to run on oil or the people who, you know, are buying the oil and, you know, it's a, it's, yeah. Yeah. it's an infinite, an infinite circle. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. it's an infinite Spider-Man meme. Everyone pointing at someone else. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think, 
I can't believe I, I'm glad we decided to do this in two episodes because we're not nearly done talking about this book, but we're done an hour of talking. So I think we should pause there maybe. Okay. So, I mean, we'll do final thoughts when we're done with the book. Uh, do we want to do shout outs? Shout outs? Uh, I'd like to shout out the short box comic fair. Uh, hopefully you were able to catch my tweets, um, retweeting that it was open, but it's uh, an online only zine fair that ran throughout the month of October. And there was a, a, a number of really fantastic short works. Uh, so uh, just a congratulations to everyone who worked on that project. I hope we see more zine fairs like that. Yeah, short box is great. Uh, they've been changing up what they do, but I, whatever they do is going to be fantastic. Well, I don't know. This is like, if you want a nice palate cleanser after you've read Ducks and you're feeling kind of down, I'm going to say you should read Ride On by Faith Aaron Hicks, also a cartoonist formerly of the Maritimes, now in Vancouver. And it's a story about being a horse girl and competing at horse riding. And I now have it on good authority from a horse girl. This is written very accurately. If you're a horse girl, all facts are correct. Totally a uh, shift in tone here, but uh, yeah, if you want to palate cleanser after ducks, read right on. <laughs> all right, uh, I'm gonna shout out a much less, a, a book of much less existential horror, uh, Fantastic Frights, uh, published by Cloudscape. Uh, I finally got a chance to read it. It's a, an anthology of horror stories uh, written for younger readers and it's got a fun framing device where they start out least scary and get to most scary at the end and uh, it's really great and I like it a lot. Thank you. If Depending on when this episode comes out it might still be on sale? <laughs> no I don't think it will be. Probably not. It was recently on sale at the Cosgave site yeah. but it's still available. This is you why you need need to follow us on social media so you don't miss sales <laughs> yeah we're constantly shouting out sales Ooh, look at this shiny it's like <laughs> buy this buy this 